Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of the Bay Street Capital Holdings podcast titled How Did You Do It and Why Should I Care? This series aims to highlight women doing amazing work in various industries. So today we are so lucky to be joined by Jessica Havens, who is a DEI consultant and strategist. Hi, Jessica. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great today. How are you, Leila? I'm very well, thank you. So I guess we can start with the first question, which is how did you why should I care? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, I mean, part, I guess I can give a little background on myself. I always think a little personal history is helpful to give context, especially if someone does DEI work. And just so listeners know, uh, DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so it's an easy acronym that we often use, and I forget to always explain it in podcasts. So yeah, I've been in some form of education or another for about 17 years. I'm from the South side of Chicago. So if any of your listeners are from Chicago, I'm from the neighborhoods of South Shore, South Chicago and Hyde Park. And um, I was kind of a nerdy white kid who was growing up in neighborhoods that were predominantly people of color and then in schools that were uh, majority black. And so growing up, I just had a lot of confusion about my own identity and knowing that I was white from a very young age, because that was always pointed out to me, often not in a positive context. Um, and then coming into adulthood, feeling very culturally mixed, but not with language of how to describe that, because I moved through the world as a white woman. Um, so I would just say that part of where I come from is thinking about race and identity my entire life, and just learning to observe and navigate social dynamics at work, at the grocery store, at a party, um, and then just learning some of those code switching skills um, has allowed me to move through multiple spaces and communities. Um, so that's sort of like some of the personal background. And then I worked for many years in public and private education um, as a Spanish and Latin American studies teacher with a very social justice lens. And then I currently work as a DEI strategist and consultant freelancing. So that's kind of like the brief overview of sort of who I am at the moment. Yeah. That is awesome. So I guess you mentioned that you grew up in a predominantly diverse background and you had a very diverse neighborhood. So what would you say inspired you to join the industry of DE&I? And was there a specific moment in your life which was very pivotal to this? Yeah, I am. Um... Well, I came into DEI work after many years in public education, and I would say that I was I was lucky to be raised. I was gifted um, the commitment to social justice in my family and in our religious community, and so that sense of like working for justice for a better world or for liberation was ingrained in me as a very young child. So I can't really claim responsibility for that. I would be remiss to not uh, mention my family and the communities I was raised in. Um, and so when I was a high school teacher, I taught a very liberatory curriculum. As a union representative, I was working on stopping charter school expansion in Chicago. And so I sort of came out of this activist social justice background anyways, even as, as a teacher. Um, but it wasn't until I got my master's degree in women and gender studies and the focus, we really dove into anti-racist feminism. So really sort of this theory, this introduction to theory, like, oh, wow, here's all this language to describe the world that I've been experiencing. Um, and so I just developed this passion for educating specifically around identity, oppression, power, privilege, other DEI topics. And I was like, oh, 
I can be a bridge between communities. Maybe that's how I can use my my upbringing and my sense of being able to flow in different spaces now that I have sort of this meta understanding of like how how these things are functioning, how white supremacy is functioning and patriarchy and all these things are creating this, um, the reality that we have. Um, so that was about seven or eight years ago. And then mm-hmm. since that time I've taught at the university level around these topics. Uh, I've been a DEI consultant for mostly like nonprofits and schools. So like mission driven organizations. Um, and then most recently before going back to freelancing, was um, worked in the DEI department of a major school district as a district-wide specialist. So it was working sort of at every level in public education around issues of equity. That's awesome. Awesome. And so you mentioned that you learned a lot from your experiences, but what would you say were your best resources in sort of helping you make the transition through your many different career paths? Yeah, it's great. Because, you know, what's interesting is I get asked this question. I've had people find me on LinkedIn Uh, who said, I want to get into DEI, you know, how did you do it? And I'm like, well, almost all of us have a very kind of curvy road to how we got there. There's no, it's not like becoming a doctor or an engineer, and there's a very specific uh, direction. Um, Some of the resources, again, um, is, I would say, just studying like theory, um, especially from the 80s and 90s. There's, um, I come out of a very concrete social justice background, boots on the ground, right? Like that's the real work. And I think I used to poo-poo the university or theory or say it's too highbrow, right? It's not connected to what people are experiencing. And I think I was transformed by theory actually and realized, I think particularly like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks were some of the Black feminist writers who really spoke to me. And I think it helped give me this lens into like how everyday life on the ground and then theory, how they're always playing with each other. And I think it just gave me some language to be able to talk about it. And then the key has been, how do you translate that for yeah. a layperson, you know, taking all those pieces. So I would say reading and writing um, has been one of my greatest resources. And I, everybody can't go to get a master's degree in an area connected to this who does BEY work, but it really helped it just helped bring language to my experience and to what I was witnessing in the world in a way that I, I didn't have before. Awesome. That's really good to hear. That I didn't even realize that you could learn so much about sort of DNI just from books. I thought it would also be from like experiences as well. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um yeah it's it's a combination of the two. You don't really want to live in the academy, you know, but it's sort of like you have these two extremes. And so Um, I came into DEI work really from social justice equity work, right? And so trying to figure out how that translates at an organizational level or an institutional level is uh, that's part of like the learning process too. Well, I guess my next question would be, what were any lessons that you wish you would have learned before starting in the DEI industry? Um, I, well... There's a few, (laughs) but one of them, I think what I wish I had had when I first started was more what we might call communities of practice, Mm. other people to bounce ideas off of. Um, So many people do DEI work are doing it on their own, right? They might be the only person at their organization or you're freelancing. And this work is so personal for so many of us. People, we get triggered all the time. You know, you can't really compartmentalize your personal life and your experiences from your work life so Mm -hmm. much. 
So, and I do a lot of training and facilitation and create people say crazy things in these spaces. And you're the one responsible for like bringing it back or saying the right thing and not being personally affected in that moment. And so I think, um, I would have really appreciated just that being a more common thing that practitioners of this work had communities of practice where we could get together and share like, this is what happened. How would you have done this? Um, so it felt some of it is, you know, I just learned through mistakes. Um, so that was one of them. Yeah. I would say that, that, that was, that, that was one of the biggest ones. Awesome. Okay. That's good that you kind of learned that, that, that lesson eventually, and, you know, you learn from it and you can really carry on and spread the message to other people. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So I guess looking over the span of your career, what would you say is your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? Yeah, you know, I, I glanced at these questions ahead of time and I laughed at this one. I always, you know, when someone says, what's your favorite album or what was the most pivotal piece? Those are always hard questions because you usually have like 10 things I want to say, you know. Mm. So I'm not sure if I've had a biggest failure, but I would say I've had lots of small failures in this work. Um and so, you know, trainings that didn't go as planned, you know, you, you, you hope you're speaking to everyone and you know, you know, you notice that the folks of color are totally disengaged and you're like, okay, I messed up, right? What, what do I need to do differently in this, in this space? Cause that was my job to serve everyone in the room and that didn't happen. Right. Or someone asked a question and I gave a bad answer. It didn't come out right. Or I misgender someone that I'm working with. Um, or making incorrect assumptions about the context of a situation, um, or getting pulled into a disagreement, a political disagreement that involves identity, and I know better, and I became defensive, right? I got, like, emotionally involved and lost my cool. And so, like, this work, I guess I'll just, it's like me being vulnerable here, is that in this work, you you make lots of small failures, and so that's that's my answer to this, is mm. many and I think in this work, sort of the progression of how you know you're doing good work is that you make less and less of those, right? You get wiser and wiser about how to answer, how to navigate a room, how to ensure that you're holding space for everyone there, um, how to take accountability when you make mistakes. But you kind of don't learn that until you do it. And so, um, yeah, if you're doing it right, you mess up less over time. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Well, that's nice that you also learn from it as well. Like it's always good to learn from your failures. Yeah, 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 definitely. That's, I mean, I think one of the benefits of coming into DEI work from education is that as an educator, you're kind of always in the space of a learner. If you're a good educator, you always think of yourself as a learner because every act of teaching, you learn what works and doesn't. And so I think that has served to my benefit. Um, to have sort of that mindset of the work because it allows you not to get too messed up emotionally when something doesn't go well and you can kind of just like okay like we need to figure out if there's amends that need to be made and we need to move forward and continue the work that's awesome so what advice would you give somebody actually who was wanting to go into the DEI space um well some connecting it to the last question is that if you're coming into this work you should expect it to be messy you should expect it to be imperfect and that you're not always going to get it right, right? Because DEI work, I think we think of DEI work, especially in the United States, is like very race-based, which it is. Yeah. Race is foundational understanding equity, but it involves so many aspects of identity and experience, right? It's connected to language and religion and class and gender and sexuality, um, immigration status. 
all these pieces sort of like come together. And so it's going to be messy. Um, and I think if you expect it to be that, um, it will help you move forward um, and continue the work. And can always read, doing tons of read, as much reading as you can do. Um, sometimes people are going into DEI work, come in strictly from like the business angle, right? So organizational development, and then they have like a little bit of the equity lens, but I would say grounding yourself in some theory, particularly by black and brown women who have really paved the way for so much of this work, um, especially in the eighties and nineties is really helpful just to like keep grounding yourself in the conversations that people are having about the work is very helpful. And just to know what the current debates are. There's debates about whether or not white people should be in the work at all, right? That's a debate, right? And so if you're in the work, it's helpful to just be able to navigate those political conversations. Mm. Yeah, there must be some very important conversations, obviously. And I feel like the space of DEI is constantly changing and adapting. So I feel like, you know, there are conversations that are yet to be had as well. Oh, there's there's so many. And what I will just say is that it's a this isn't part of the question, but it's a bit of a blessing and a curse that DEI work is so fashionable right now. I'm going to use that word. So it sounds a little cynical. Mm. I think on one end, it's great that so that I think because of Black Lives Matter and this last year, there's just a greater attention on for organizations to address DEI or equity or anti-racism. Um, but the downside to that is that people want some quick fixes. There's some concern around tokenism um, as opposed to really transformational work for us to really have a more holistic, caring, equitable society. And I think um, that's kind of the downside of, of it, of it becoming fashionable as people, okay, I got to get on this train. Like, what do we need to do? Like, who do we need to hire? And sometimes that can be a barrier to like deeper work that requires years to sort of shift the culture, um, and policies of an institution. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, and then what is one common myth actually about the DE&I space that you would like to debunk right here, right now? <laughs> This is like my favorite question. I was like, oh man, I have so many. So, but I'll pick one um, since that's what you requested. Um, I guess one of them is people's notion that DEI work is basically about telling white people about stories of racism, white people feel bad, and then racism goes away. But that's sort of like what we do. And people are like, well, how as a white person could you possibly do that if you're not a person of color and haven't experienced racism, right? And so I think one of the the myths is, for me, DEI work is a calling, right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody's called to do this work. It's like, it's to me, it's like in in uh, those of us who go into this are a bit insane, right? Of wanting to like be that person to be holding this space and saying that's what we do. Um but it kind of requires being attentive to like psychology and behavior of people and of organizations of um, being able to develop a lens where you can see how everything is connected, how the, all of the isms are connected, right? How our identities are connected, how all of our systems that we live and work in and breathe in are all connected. Um, and then being able to take all that information and then being able to engage someone who maybe is like at ground zero, right? How do you engage them in a way um, so that they understand? And you're using lay people's language, right? Um, and then also not relying too heavily on what some of us might call like trauma porn um, mm -hmm. 
to teach, right? Which is reinforcing, can, can sometimes reinforce a, vic, uh, a narrative of like victimhood and disempowerment of like communities that have already been marginalized by the system. And which is really tricky this work. Sometimes we over rely on those stories to like teach. And that doesn't feel in alignment with like how I want to like empower our world and empower communities. So um, yeah, I guess that's the biggest piece is that like DEI work, I really feel like should be pushing for transformative change as opposed to, um, which means like reimagining our organizations um, and communities that really decenter, not necessarily get rid of, but decenter white patriarchal uh, heterosexual Western views and ways of doing as like the norm or as the best way. Right. And so that just requires a really broad lens. So I guess that's what I would debunk around DEI work that it's a bit uh, deeper and really, if you're doing it right, it's transformative work and requires, I think kind of like a, a particular um, yeah, vocation and personality to be able to sort of hold all of that at once while working with people. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. And I'm sure obviously you're very busy as well with your work, but is there anything you've read or listened to recently that's really inspired you? Yes. So the, I have two. I have one that's like kind of technical and the other is sci-fi. So Octavia Butler is one of my favorite sci-fi writers. And I don't read uh, I don't read sci-fi. Uh, she's, um, she's since passed, but was like one of the prominent black sort of feminist sci-fi writers. Mm-hmm. And what I love about her work, so I'm rereading her books. So they're all sort of post-apocalyptic, reimagining the world. And mm-hmm. all the protagonists and characters are like women of color. And she somehow navigates identity and politics in really is trying to imagine a new world, but does it through imagination. So that Octavia Butler, shout out to her. And then in terms of work, uh, the Racial Healing Handbook uh, is written by Annalise Singh. um, And I've used that actually multiple times in the past year to work with groups. So Mm -hmm. if groups, you know, a group of people, a staff, a leadership board is looking for like, what would a good text be um, for us to read together and talk? about race identity and thinking about these topics. It's a great book because it's written for a a multiracial audience. Sometimes Mm -hmm. these books are written for white people, even though they don't say they're written for white people. They they definitely center white people's understanding around race. And what I love about this book is it's really made for a multiracial group. And so Mm -hmm. like for every section, she talks to white people and then talks to folks of color um, as a mixed race woman of color herself. And um, so that's those would be the two books are really I've used that book now two or three times in the past year to work with groups. So it's a great handbook that anybody can kind of use with a group. Good to hear. Good to hear. Um, next question is generally a tough one because I'm asking you to sort of narrow it down to three people. But who are three people in your life who have been the most influential to you? Well, like I said, I'm horrible at questions like this and it'd be way easier to list like 20 people. Um so I picked, I picked, well, my parents are the first, um, I would say why they are so, they have been so influential is that they really were the rebels in both of their families and they left their families of origin to raise their children on the South side of Chicago that they really honestly knew nothing about, um, and, or very little about. Right. And so, and really wanted to raise their daughters, 
with a very strong social justice mindset, which was distinct from both of their families of origin. Um, and so I feel like they did that hard work with some of our, our extended family that then my sister and I didn't have to do because we were raised in those spaces. We didn't sort of have to like kind of leave our family of origin, um, which was theirs was much more conservative and rural and pieces like that. So I would say my parents um, continued to inspire me and I don't think I tell them that enough. So maybe I'll have them watch this so they can, they can hear that on here. Um, and the other two people, I have a lot of people in my personal life who've been inspirational, but in terms of, I didn't know how to interpret this question. So I, I thought of some famous people that I had read about. Um, is one of the most transformational books and stories was Malcolm X. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people think of Malcolm X in his super radical stance um, in his like first half of his life. And I was lucky enough to read because I went to an all black high school. So reading African-American lit was like part of our requirement at that school. And mm -hmm. so I read Malcolm X when I was 16 and it continues to be like one of the most profound books of my life. Um, and I think why is his story of transformation, right? And a lot of people haven't read the full story, but he goes to Mecca and is sort of transformed by how multiracial it is um, when he's praying with like, just like, you know, a host of Muslims from like around the world, right? And how that shifts his narrative understanding of like what's possible, right? What's possible um, in multiracial spaces. And um, what's interesting is when he comes back is then when he's killed. Um, so he's always been sort of that story of like human transformation um, and that sense of like healing and the ability of, that we all have to shift our consciousness when we have this like amazing experience. So, um, Malcolm X is one of them. And I picked another person. Would you like me to pick another person? I picked another writer. Yeah, sure. One more person would be great. So one other person was um, Audre Lorde um, and sort of famous Black feminist writer from the United States. Um, but what she helped me do is, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is social justice spaces or organizing can be super patriarchal in how they organize themselves and how they treat people and how we, you know, thinking about cancel culture, like how we engage with the humanity of others. And I think Audre Lorde was the first person who, yes, she was feminist, yes, she was anti-racist, but she was so, um, I don't know if I want to say feminine in her approach, but she really, um, she brought in like, how is healing connected to the, these very concrete things around systems and we need to dismantle all these pieces and just brought in the humanity. Like, what does that mean to really attend to ourselves as like beautiful human beings on the planet? And while also being conscious of being political and all these pieces. So I think she, her writing was just transformative to me and really helped me shift. And so a lot of my work is very feminist informed, even though I do a lot of race work, it's very informed by um, particularly uh, feminists of color and just, just thinking more holistically about what kind of world we want to live in. Like, you know, I think they say, I don't want just bread. I want roses too. I don't know who said that saying, but it was a union saying, you know, it's like, I don't want us to just survive. I want us to like, I want our communities and spaces to feel like we can thrive and be happy and be resilient. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And finally, to sort of wrap up our conversation at any point in your life, is there any advice that you wish you gave yourself? Um, well, sometimes I have imposter syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. Like everyone's not going to like me. 
Maybe I have haters. Um, not everybody's going to be able to see me for who I am or what I offer. Um, and so the advice to myself is just following my intuition that this is the work I should be doing and listening to the people that do love me as opposed to maybe people who don't <laughs> or don't understand me. Um, so I think cultivating self-love and just a commitment to always being a learner has really helped me stay in this field and this path. So it's advice I gave myself before and I still have to, I still have to give myself that advice of just, you know, like just keep doing the work that you feel called to do. Awesome. Well, what a lovely note to end on. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Jessica. It was lovely to hear your story and also hear more about what you do. Thank you so much, Leila. It's a pleasure. Thank you. All right then. Bye. Bye.